Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast, also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at Greenville. And I have with me in the studio for one of our last times together in Greenville, Dr. Benjamin Shaw, Professor of Hebrew and Old Testament here at Greenville Seminary. Dr. Shaw, thank you for joining me. It is my pleasure. Dr. Shaw has been professor of Hebrew and Old Testament here at Greenville Seminary for just about 30 years, isn't it? 29. Yeah. 29 years, almost 30 years. And rather than hit the big 3-0, he is, has accepted a job offer and call to Reformation Bible College, where he will be teaching Old Testament to um, hopefully subsequent generations of um of uh, undergraduate students. We're excited for him and the opportunity that this uh, presents to him for a good ministry in his dotage, but <laughs> but we are sad to see him go. And, um, and though we wish him well, we are weeping by the rivers of Babylon uh, at seeing his departure from us. Well, today we have on deck uh, the, the task of talking through his new book on Ecclesiastes, published by Banner of Truth Trust. The full title is Ecclesiastes, Life in a Fallen World. This is the first of my author interviews that I've done in a while here on the podcast, but I have a couple more on the back burner as well, and I'm excited to get them to you. So allow this to be the inaugural author interview for the winter of 2019 to 2020. Dr. Shaw, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book on Ecclesiastes? What inspired it? Why did you write it? It really started in a class on wisdom literature that I took during my doctoral studies at Duke. Um, I, we had to work through uh, primarily Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon in that class. And there was just something about the book that struck me that perpetuated uh, a long-term interest in the book. And have you taught the wisdom literature class here at Greenville Seminary? Yes. And you'll be teaching that same material down at RBC, right? Yes. All right, good stuff. So when we approach Ecclesiastes, what is the context, canonical and immediate, that we should have in mind in order rightly to, to read and glean truth from it? Well, I think canonical context, uh, we find it obviously as part of the sort of loosely defined as the poetic literature uh, in that collection, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Uh, more immediate uh, parallel, obviously, with the book of Proverbs. There's much proverbial style literature in the book. Historical context, I would say we're looking at the context of uh, the reign of Solomon. Uh, that uh, it's you know, that, that period, that golden age, if you will, of Israel's history, when Israel was still a united uh, nation and not yet divided into two nations, and there was a certain amount of wealth and prosperity and international importance during that period. And when would the people of Israel uh, look at the book of Ecclesiastes in their national experience or national life? Was it knit into the annual rhythms of the festivals, observance, and, and that kind of thing? Well, how long this practice goes back is hard to say, but it is currently read as part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles and has been for quite some time. It's, it's included along with uh, Lamentations, uh, Song of Solomon, Esther, and Ruth as one of the 
books that's read at, at five festivals during the year, Song of Songs uh, read at Passover, Ruth read at Pentecost, uh, Lamentations read on the anniversary of the fall of the temple, and, and then Esther read, of course, at the, time, at the Feast of Purim. And so Ecclesiastes is read at the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. What is the significance of that? Well, the, the Feast of Tabernacles recalls God's provision for Israel in the period of the wilderness wandering, that 40 years uh, that they were stuck, uh, having refused entry at the first opportunity. Ecclesiastes, in that context, sort of reminds people of God's provision for us in this life of pilgrimage. It's not just a book of odd sayings that we can do with what we want or so desire. No, there's a coherence to it. Now, I think uh, I ask that question because in in my experience, when I've seen uh, men and women approach Ecclesiastes, they're typically confounded by it. Or as in, in the words of one philosophy professor I had at Temple University, don't know what it's doing there. It doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of, uh, of that genre of literature, is how he put it, uh, which means I think he actually thought Ecclesiastes appealed to him somewhat, and he didn't like the rest of the Bible <laughs> uh, in his case. But, but it is a question, even for Christians who, who, who believe that every word of Scripture, every jot and tittle is profitable for rebuke, instruction, training, and in righteousness, and edification, and, and every other good thing. So how can we then... Uh, benefit from Ecclesiastes? How should we approach it? Does it have to do with a people in exile and wandering in the desert? Yeah, I think the I think really the key to Ecclesiastes is twofold. Number one, understanding what is meant by the key word in the book, uh, vanity, uh, as, as it's usually translated. Uh, and the other is understanding something of the influence of earlier canonical literature on the book. What is the place of that key word? What is the significance of that for our Christian life? Uh, the word literally uh, means a puff of wind. And, the, uh, and so obviously Solomon is using it figuratively, uh, metaphorically throughout the book. Um, but then we have to reflect. We have to think, what, okay, what is there about a puff of wind that fits Solomon's use of the term in the book? And I think the... The primary thing is that the a puff of wind is ephemeral. It's here and it's gone. Uh, secondly, it is insubstantial. Uh, thirdly, if we try to grasp it, there's a related phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, the pursuit of wind or the chasing after wind, uh, that it introduces frustration because it's something that we want to grasp onto, that we want to hold onto, and yet that we can't. And uh, you said the, the other consideration that Christians should have when they approach the book is on the layout of the book, the structure of it, and the mm -hmm. flow of the argument. Yeah, and I think that when we look carefully at the book of Ecclesiastes, the first five chapters, are, are they're a riff, if you will, on Genesis 1 to 5, um, in that at the very beginning— uh, Solomon calls to mind the creation because he, he, in those opening 11 verses of the book, he runs through uh, aspects of creation. And then uh, at the end of that, uh, and then moving into the second chapter, he recalls uh, the three temptations that the fruit 
provided to Eve, that it was uh, good to the taste, it was delight to the eyes, and it was deli- it was desired to be make to make one wise. And Solomon then reflects on our tendency to still be drawn by those temptations, and yet that when we follow them, we find that ultimately they're fruitless, that they do not uh, do not deliver what they promise. And then as you move into the into chapter four of Genesis, you see, of course, the conflict between Cain and Abel, the envy uh, of Abel that God or of, and the envy of Cain's envy of Abel, uh, that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not accept Cain's and the and the conflict that ensues, and then the violence and oppression that we see developing particularly in the line of Cain uh, in chapter four. And then, Almost as, as a throwaway line at the end of Genesis 4, we get that statement, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. And that brings us to chapter 5 in the book uh, of Ecclesiastes where Solomon draws our attention to the importance of the worship of God uh, and reminding us that we are creatures responsible to the God uh, who made us. And then the rest of the book sort of plays off of that how do how do we then you know recognizing that we live in a fallen world and yet we still owe our obedience and our duty to God how do we live in that uh, in that context that's very helpful you know something I, I want to point out or, or maybe ask you about rather than point it out is the intended audience of the book I look at the the book and have it in my hands here it's only 156 words or <laughs> 156 pages. <laughs> I don't think the Banner of Truth has ever published a book of only 156 yeah, no. words. It's 156 pages. It, it really reminds me of a book I read earlier in the year, Conflict and Triumph is the current title now by William Henry Green, the, the old Princeton Old Testament professor who brought Voss to Princeton. And that's a, a short treatment on, I think, the argument of the book of Job unfolded was the original title. And again, a short, accessible, clear book that just breaks down a a difficult text of Scripture. And that's what I think you've done here. Who were you writing for? I was writing for the layman, uh, for somebody who was puzzled by the book of Ecclesiastes and yet wasn't able to and didn't really want a uh, a technical commentary on the book. So it's it's an exposition uh, at a popular level. and, uh, and so it's divided into, you know, you said it's 156 pages, there's 22 chapters there. So uh, most of the chapters, four or five pages long. So it's, it's the kind of thing where you could read the passage in Ecclesiastes and then read the four or five pages uh, on, the, uh, on that section as a devotional reading. But I think it, I think it does a fair job of, of taking the reader through the book and, and leaving them with a certain level of satisfaction rather than frustration. And would this be a good book for pastors to reference in their preparation for sermons, or would you say probably not? Maybe something to reflect on later on in the sermon prep process. I think it would probably be something later on in the sermon prep process as they're thinking about, okay, how do I apply this? Yeah, so it does does definitely have that practical bent to it. I want to dig into maybe just one or two specific places and, you know, very first sitting with you, of course, I think of Ecclesiastes 3 and the, the adaptation of it that Pete Seeger did in the late 50s and then the birds adapted in the 60s into an anthem for peace during wartime and whatever, uh, that, that old song, Turn, 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 which I think is the, cha- the title yeah. of the chapter you gave it. Turn, 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 
or time and eternity. Ecclesiastes 3, we know this uh, this passage. My daughter just latched onto it, is memorizing it right now, my uh-huh. eight-year-old. A time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what has been planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to distance oneself from embracing, a time to seek and a time to blot out, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What is the profit to the maker in that at which he himself labors? I have seen the afflicting task that God has given to the sons of man to afflict with it. All that he does is beautiful in its time, also eternity he has set in their heart, except that the man cannot find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. And the passage goes on. Of course, we could sit here and just read the whole book of Ecclesiastes to the benefit of our listeners. But tell us a little bit about this passage. How has it been popularly understood? And uh, and where has that popular understanding uh, missed the mark? And how ought we to understand this particular passage of Scripture? Uh, I think at the popular level, probably uh, many people uh, connect that time sequence, if you will, with that uh, song that Pete Seeger wrote and that the birds popularized. And, and so it's a, it, it has become, in the popular imagination, something of a, uh, a peace anthem. Uh, but that's not really what it is. Uh, the, each of those pairs there is what's called a merism, uh, that you take the two extremes of something and, and, and by identifying the two extremes, you include everything in between. And so for a time, uh, a time to give birth and a time to die, that is the whole of life. Um, or uh, a time to uh, plant and a time to uproot what has been planted. The whole cycle of planting and harvesting and, and all of that kind of thing. That everything has its time. And, and one of the problems for us is that we can't, we can't really discern appropriate times. Things come along in our lives, and we didn't think it was time for that, but yet it is. Uh, you know, young couple, uh, for example, they're planning on on putting off having children for a few years until they kind of get things straightened out and settled down, and all of a sudden they find out she's pregnant, and it's the right time, and yet for them, they wouldn't have planned it that way. And, and, and part of the... Uh, I think a major consideration for that is is in the in the follow up comments that God makes everything beautiful in its time and and He's the one who has put all this together in the right way and so we are really subject uh, to to God's purposes and God's planning and that we need to recognize and to see the beauty in His organization of things. You know, I'm not one of those. Uh, folks that that really cherishes or gives pride of place in my life to you know quotations and you know smart sayings of famous people of the past but you know there are a couple that really do stick out to me I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that by the way you know though I think it can be abused it's actually a good practice to to latch on to good sayings that you can store up along with of course scripture uh, but one one quote the one quotation I keep by my desk at all times here at the seminary because I'm you know meticulously planning and executing plans all the time is this from Samuel Rutherford set no time to the Lord the creator of time for his time is always best 
And is that not what is being spoken of here, yeah. at least in one application yeah. of that? Right. Yeah. That, uh, you know, we, or to borrow the line from uh, Proverbs, uh, Lord, uh, the man plans his way, but the Lord guides his steps. And so it's uh, the recognition that all of these things are in God's hands, ultimately, and not ours. And that ties into um, one of the, the great themes of Ecclesiastes, and I've heard you speak on this before, the theme of impermanence and permanence. Mm-hmm. Things in our experience pass away, but yet the truth abides forever and is permanent. Right. One of the other themes that we have here is that life in fullness, where Ecclesiastes will take us if we let it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and what exactly does Ecclesiastes, which to so many people seems like a hopeless book, where does it take us in terms of articulating uh, a vision or illustrating a vision for a full life or a life lived to the full? Okay, I'm going to come at this through the back door. Uh, I was reminded a couple of days ago of a blog post that I'd read three or four years ago uh, by a Christian woman who was teaching in China, and she had the opportunity to spend the uh, Christmas break, uh, the winter break with one of her students in this student's hometown, which was a, a rural village in China. And she had all of these hopes and plans for what she was going to accomplish with the time with this student and her family. And it all, it, it all really came to naught. Uh, I mean, they mostly spent their time sitting around watching Chinese soap operas uh, which this woman could kind of half understand. Uh, and she was quite frustrated by that until it dawned on her that, you know, this is ordinary life. This is the way life is. You get up, you go to work, you come home, you go to bed, and that's it day after day after day. And then linking that to the incarnation and that for 30 years, Christ labored day by day, getting up, going to work, going home, going to bed, in with no notoriety, no notice, no uh, none of his fellow villagers uh, imagining who he was, and that's and we need to recognize we, we tend to think that we find pleasure in the special things in. Uh, but those are few and far between, and many people don't have many of them. And what's, what Solomon directs us to in Ecclesiastes is to take pleasure in the ordinary things, um, the, 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 the good time around the table with the family, the, um, the love of your wife, uh, uh, you know, the delight of children or, or something that happens in the course of a day that, uh, or that a, a child does, for example, that parents remember decades later and the child has long forgotten, but still brings delight. And, and to take delight in the ordinary elements of life and not to, not to try to derive and not to try to depend on extraordinary experiences. My wife and I have been talking about this very dynamic in, in our conversations at home at the tail end of a semester, which is always a, a 
crushing time and she <laughs> expects that and and I expect it so we make provisions uh, for that kind of thing but also um, she's been reading books uh, that I think very helpfully highlight the the goodness the fullness of being faithful in daily everyday household management chores especially when you're in that season of life with young children mm-hmm. who are utterly dependent on you for everything from laundry to dishes to cooking to cleaning to whatever and and Jocelyn and I uh, divide and conquer the chores as right. much as we yeah. can while also trying to get the children involved where it's appropriate and more and more so as the years go by they can be more and more helpful um, but you know she she brought up to me that you know everybody deals with this yeah you know whether you're in an office or you're a homemaker at home you're looking for that golden bullet that or silver bullet that quick fix you know how do I fold my clothes so that I can get on away from that to the thing that's going to bring me real joy and happiness and that sensational movie I've been wanting to watch or whatever it is. And, you know, for my part, um, and, and probably a lot of our listeners can uh, sympathize with this, as Reformed folks listening to a podcast about a book, uh, I tend to read hastily so I can get on to the next book that's going to give me whatever it is I'm looking for. And that, too, is vanity. And, in fact, I think the author of Ecclesiastes talks about the vanity of books, books doesn't he? Yes, yes, he does. The making of many books is... There is no end. Yeah. Uh, we see that each and every and, and, day. And you think in, uh, yeah, in his day, it took a long time to make a book and to make copies of a book took uh, a long time. And I was reading an art, a short article yesterday just about the effect both in the consequences, uh, both intended and unintended, of the of the press uh, of Gutenberg's press, and how within three years there were three hundred uh, uh, within three by fifteen twenty there were three hundred thousand copies of Luther's works in print in Europe. Uh, Would have been utterly impossible even fifty years before. Yeah. 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 That, that's remarkable. I didn't know it was that voluminous. I and I just took Reformation Church history with Dr. McGoldrick, and we do talk about the it, the influence of the printing press. How mm-hmm. you know Luther ni- nailing the ninety five theses on the church door in Wittenberg in 1517 it, uh, is remarkable and noteworthy. Mm-hmm. If it happened in fourteen seventeen, he just would have been burned at the stake, and no one would have known who he was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and that was part of the uh, part of the point that this article made, and, and that uh, comparatively speaking, that. Uh, that 300,000 copies of Luther's uh, publications was, you know, the modern equivalent would be cat videos on Facebook, you know, just the, the, the immense widespread popularity of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly right. Cause the population levels were so low. Yeah. 300,000 copies says a lot about its popularity. Very good. Uh, one of the themes in Ecclesiastes that I've always latched onto and noted is a theme that runs throughout all of the wisdom literature. Maybe you want to tie in some of the, the interconnectedness uh, of, of the wisdom literature, and that is a theme of the wise man and the fool. Mm-hmm. Can you open up f- uh, for us a little bit how Ecclesiastes treats that theme in relation to how Proverbs and Psalms and other literature would treat that same theme? There's a tendency in some commentaries on Ecclesiastes to to downplay uh, the role of wisdom uh, and and Solomon Solomon isn't about that he recognize he recognizes the importance of wisdom 
uh, you know, that the wise man has eyes in his head, but the fool is essentially blind. But Solomon wants to remind us also that even the wisest of wise men, there are limits to his wisdom. There are limits to his understanding. And he should know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you don't get perhaps quite that sense of limitation uh, in, say, Proverbs, uh, because the the purpose of Proverbs is really to inculcate and to encourage uh, people to grow uh, in wisdom. And, and, then, and then in Ecclesiastes, Solomon comes along and reminds us that sort of like a cartoon uh, uh, that I ran across a long time ago where this obvious graduate student is in the library and he's got books all over his table and there are, half of them are open and others stacked up with markers in them. And then there are books all around him on the shelves and there you know, these little word clouds read me no read me next and and just the frustration and despair on the face of this student uh the um and 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 the rec- the recognition that human wisdom has its limits and human ability has its limits we're sitting in my office right now which you know, my library is what Dr. Wilborn calls a good start. But usually when visitors to the seminary come in, uh, especially if they're like my age or younger, they look around and they say, are these all your books? And I said, uh, it's most of them. I got a few at home too. My parenting books are at home and, and other, you know, some of my Bibles are at home. And they said, you have more books than this? I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's wild. And every day I walk in here and I need to reorganize it again and I just think, I'm never going to get through all these. Why do I have them all? Yeah. And then it's like, well, because I want to get through them. And that in and of itself is a good desire. And Dr. Shaw has been packing up his books to move. And I'm sure the same thought has crossed your mind. Yeah. So it, uh, I, I've decided I have too many books, but I still want to hold on to the ones I've got. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, a move across country will convince any reformed bro that he has too many books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe Dr. Wilborn <laughs> or Dr. Piper. Um, anyway, that that's a great theme, and I like how you put that, that in Ecclesiastes, what is encouraged in Proverbs and Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture is shown to be ultimately... Uh, limited by our human ability and capacity for wisdom, uh, much less just our time. And mm-hmm. going back to the theme of time and eter- eternality and impermanence and permanence. Uh, finally, I, you know, I want to I leave something for our listeners to want to pick up the book and, and read it themselves. There is one other note I wanted to hit on here, and that is the note of life in a fallen world. So many of us, and I'm this has been true for me in the past, reading through Ecclesiastes, especially the first couple times I did. You come away with it thinking, man, life really stinks. This world is terrible. Why does God even have us here except to suffer and to labor in vain? But yet, you, you tell us in this book, and I think it's one of the, the ringing themes or applications of the book, that God has given us today to enjoy. And, and to delight in, that even life in a fallen world is to be filled with joy and delight. Open that up for us a little bit. Yeah. I, my wife once, uh, as I was working on this, we were talking about the book, and, and she kind of summarized uh, the book as, life stinks, then you die, and I'm okay with that. 
<laughs> and there, there's a, you know, the I think the difficulty of Ecclesiastes is that it is so profoundly realistic. Uh, Solomon does not want to leave his readers with any illusions about about reality, and so uh, the but the recognition that even though it's a fallen world, yet it is God's world, and He has made it. He controls it, uh, and uh, particularly for His people. But you know, He sends His rain on the just and the unjust. There, there is joy to be found, and. I, I once heard a uh, an RUF minister talk about one of the problems with the students that he ministered to was they were they were possibility junkies. They wouldn't commit to anything in case something better showed up. Oh yeah, I'll come to your party if nothing better shows up. And and I think what Solomon wants us to do is to say no. Enjoy what's here now because it won't be there tomorrow. Uh, and better is a bird in the hand uh, than two in the bush uh, kind of thing. Uh, take advantage of the opportunities for joy when you have them and don't put them off. Um, sometimes uh, work is going to seem more important than, than home, but no. Earlier today we had a couple of visitors to the seminary and um... – and I said, I forget why exactly I brought this up, but that old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, graduating with a family, but graduating from college in a recession economy, uh, you have a lot of necessity and you're going to invent, you know, whatever you need to in order to, to make ends meet. And I remember I worked in a, with a political science degree. I worked in retail. You know, thinking, okay, I, I'm going to go to seminary at some point, but I can't afford it right now. How am I going to make this work? But um, that was extremely formative for me. At the time, I thought it was just I'm wasting my time, but providing for my family, when really it was God uh, working unseen to me, unbeknownst to me, to yeah. shape me to uh, to be you know better around people and, and yeah. you know more uh, you know goal oriented and, and different things that I really wasn't coming out of undergrad and. And I think that that problem of being a possibility junkie, it really is, it's permitted through um, leisure and, and prosperity. But uh, when you face adversity, such as life in a fallen world, you, uh, you learn how to be inventive, you learn how to appreciate what you have, and, and learn how to do stuff with it yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. to get by. And I, I think that that's a, an extremely realistic picture of just daily life in a fallen world. Right. Well, Dr. Shaw, I really appreciate you coming um, on the show before you move. I know it's a busy time for you, and I want to commend your book to our listeners. And so with that in mind, the best way to purchase the book is probably to go on the Banner of Truth's website and purchase it directly from the publisher. But I'm also sure that it's available um, at Westminster uh, Seminary Books and also... um, at Reformation Heritage Books. We had a few here in stock in the li- in our bookstore at gbts.edu slash shop, but we're sold out. So I don't think we have any in stock right now. Um, but certainly from those other booksellers, depending upon what 
gift cards you get at this time of year for whatever reason you might get them. Uh, <laughs> I got to be real careful talking about that. Uh, but depending on what gift cards you get, go to one of those booksellers, pick up the book and, and read and enjoy. Even if you have a, a great uh, level of familiarity with Ecclesiastes from a technical standpoint, I think you will find that this book will be a balm to the soul and will be helpful for bridging the gap between text and, and day-to-day life in the 21st century. But um, perhaps um, now more than ever, Ecclesiastes is an extremely relevant book and useful in our ministry and in our conversations with friends and family. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Thank you. You've been listening to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Thank you for listening. For more information about the seminary, please visit gpts.edu or call the seminary at 864-322-2717. We look forward to visiting with you.